There's a bank in Quantico, Virginia that gets robbed every day, and I'm going to take you there. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs. In this episode of True Crime Reporter, former FBI agent Don Bentley takes us inside the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. New special agents start their career there in an intensive 20-week-long training program. Realistic training scenarios unfold in a mock town called Hogan's Alley, named after a comic strip from the 1890s. I've reported there many times on stories ranging from bank robberies to weapons of mass destruction. I've posted links to those stories in the show notes. The 10-acre training facility contains a bank, post office, hotel, laundromat, barbershop, theater, homes, everything you would find in a real urban setting. It's like a Hollywood set that features actors playing armed criminals. In an homage to the deadly shootout with John Dillinger, there is a mock biograph theater where three FBI agents ended the gangster's reign as public enemy number one. My guest, Don Bentley, went through all of that training, and he was well-suited for it. Before the FBI, Bentley served in the U.S. Army as a pilot for 10 years and flew an AH-64 Apache helicopter gunship. Bentley received the Bronze Star and Air Medal with a V device for Valor. He commanded a quick reaction force in support of Operation Red Wings in Afghanistan. The story of that mission can be heard on Episode 56 of Jack Carr's podcast, Danger Close. Carr, as you may know, is a former Navy SEAL and now a New York Times bestselling author of The Terminal List. The Terminal List, starring Chris Pratt, is an acclaimed series on Amazon Prime. Don Bentley is also a New York Times bestselling author of the Matt Drake series, spinning out potboilers about terrorism and intelligence operations. In this episode, we discuss the focus of the FBI since 9-11. Here's my interview with Don Bentley. Okay, Don, welcome to the uh, podcast. Give us a little background before we get to your FBI experience of how you went from flying Army Apache helicopters in Afghanistan to the FBI. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Robert. Um, I went to school at The Ohio State University on a uh, Army ROTC scholarship and was lucky enough to get uh, aviation afterwards. And And when you are get slotted for aviation. You compete uh, across the year or so of flight school to figure out what platform you're going to get to fly. And uh, I got Apache gunships, which is amazing. It is hard to have a bad day when you're flying an Apache gunship. They have this nice little 30 millimeter cannon that hangs beneath it. And whichever way you turn your head, that cannon goes to, and it just makes things disappear. It's pretty incredible. And so uh, after doing 10 years in the Army, including uh, one combat tour to Afghanistan as a, as a troop commander, I got out of the Army and uh, first spent three years uh, working in corporate America. And I wasn't quite ready to uh, sit in a cubicle just yet. It was uh, an amazing company I was working for, but I told my wife probably on my first or second day that I finally understood all the jokes of the movie Office Space now because I was sitting in this cubicle farm that just had desks as far as the eye could see. And so I kind of went from chasing bad guys in Afghanistan to sitting 
in a cubicle and, and wasn't ready to do that. And so fortunately, the FBI had a program at the time that was called the Tactical Recruiting Program. And so they were looking specifically with folks or for folks rather who had uh, military or, or more specifically combat experience for twofold. So one, they wanted the folks um, who would fit that um, requirement to form kind of a pipeline for their hostage rescue team and come assess for that. And then they also, if you look at their hostage rescue team, there's a separate element um, that also has special agents that um, is, is kind of the FBI's own little air force. And so they're the ones who fly all the hostage rescue team operators. And so they were interested in me um, because of my background and combat experience as a helicopter pilot. And so I got to, to move to the front of the line, if you will, as, as part of the, um, the uh, process for the FBI, which depending on how many agents they're hiring that year and what it looks like, it can last anywhere from 18 months to up to two years as you go through all the different gates. I think the the crazy number they throw around is something like 250,000 people each year apply to be an FBI agent and they take around 2,000 or so. And so certainly a number of those folks are, are probably people who, who grew up on the X-Files and maybe have no business applying to be an FBI agent, but it's still a pretty tight um, cutoff no matter how you look at it. And so for me, that process only took about nine months or so. And so then I went from sitting in a Quantico to um, going to, or sitting in a cubicle rather, to go into Quantico for the, I think at the time it was the 20 or 21 weeks FBI Academy. And then got moved uh, after I graduated to the to the Dallas field office where I got to do a lot of fun stuff and and be on the SWAT team there in Dallas. And so it was a it was a pretty fantastic gig. I've been fortunate enough to to work for two incredible government organizations. One, um, the Army as as a 10 year long uh, air cavalry officer and Apache pilot, and then the other being the FBI. Let me take you back to the academy, which is in Quantico, Virginia. Uh, were you in the same class, even though you're on a special track? Were you in the same class with the rookie agents that are coming in? Oh, yeah. And just to be clear, we were all rookie agents. So once you get to Quantico, it doesn't matter uh, what your background was or how you came into the academy. In fact, in my class, and I don't know how many we started with, maybe 40 or 50 folks, we had everything from... Um, prior military Green Berets and, and, and force uh, recon special operations folks to uh, elementary school teachers and kind of everything in between. And so the Bureau casts a very wide net. And, and the reason for that is because although most people know the FBI as, as kind of the, the organization that, that went after Al Capone and, and tried to shut down um, corruption in Chicago, now the FBI, uh, that, that is only a small part of what the FBI does. And so when you're in Quantico, you're assigned um, what's one of five, what they call career paths. And so those five criminal is one of them, but only one of them. And so you have criminal, counterintelligence, intelligence, counterterrorism, and cyber. And so all of those, if you look at at least three of those, so intelligence, counterintelligence, terrorism, and I guess four of them, because cyber has a national security aspect too, four of those five are very heavily focused on national security, on, on counterterrorism, on counterintelligence. And so they want a, you know, the traditional um, model of an FBI recruit was somebody who was 
uh, prior law enforcement or maybe was an accountant or a lawyer, and they still hire an awful lot of those, but they also hire a lot, an awful lot of engineers and soldiers and teachers and kind of everything in between. It really is a, a pretty incredible organization, um, both from the work that they do and then the, the very interesting people that they hire as well. Well, I've done a number of stories there uh, for television. Plus, I've had a number of friends that went to the uh, the Academy for Law Enforcement, where law enforcement is selected to come back and go through. And I was always struck by just the depth of the training. I, I, I don't I've never seen any organization like it for the kind of depth of training that they do. So and of course, I saw every time I was there, we shot something on Hogan's Alley. And they have a mock-up of the Biograph Theater where John Dillinger was killed. Tell us, tell us about what goes on at Hogan's Alley. I've never talked to that about that to my audience. So Hogan's Alley, like you said, is a little uh, town in the middle of Quantico um, that you die more times than any any person has a right to die. And in fact, I remember going back there um, after I graduated and still feeling the twinge as, as you went through Hogan's Alley because they. What, they're, what the FBI is very good at, and, and they kind of do this in parallel in the academy, is number one, training you to be an FBI agent. And they bring in, as, as you alluded to, the best in the world in each of the disciplines as you're, as you're getting trained. And so you would, you know, rather, whether it's agents that have worked some incredible cases that they come in and tell you about, partners from other folks in the intelligence community, just in general, the, you were you were constantly humbled by the quality of the instructors that you had there. And so, on one hand, while they're building you up to this this thing that you're going to become uh, a, a FBI agent, at the same time, they're very careful to also um, build within you the the risk and what it means to be an FBI agent and 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 how that shakes out in real life. And so. That takes a number of different um, forms. So when you did, um, when you would in the in the in the gym almost every day or every other day, when you're doing um, defensive tactics, which is kind of a combination of what in the military we call combatives and and officer safety and everything from you know how do you how do you appropriately handcuff somebody to you know just high risk tactical situations to um, how to fight and how to fight multiple people and and what that actually looks like. Oftentimes at the end of those sessions, they would show you, you'd come together as a class and they would show you dashboard cameras from um, police stops that went wrong. And it was to, to both learn from that and to, to drive within you the seriousness of the business that you were about to get into. And so when you crossed the street and went to Hogan's Alley, that was taken a step further where what you learned in the gym was then put into practice in scenarios that were taken from um, real life incidents that happen. And so it could be anything from that, you know, there are a series of houses at Hogan's Alley and, and your job is to go up and, and what seems like something very innocuous, there's somebody in the house that you want to talk to, to just do an interview and you knock on a door and, and somebody answers with a gun um, sticking in your face as they come out. And so it's, it's, it's designed to test and stress you and to take what you've learned kind of in a, in a sanitized environment, if you will, in the gym, and then, and then put that into practice in real life. And so on one hand, you graduate from the academy, I think, feeling very confident in your abilities and also very 
uh, wary at the same time because over and over again, you've gone through the scenarios where things things have gone wrong, where agents before you in the field faced um, sometimes devastating consequences for 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 a lot of times things were that were out of their control. But again, the business of law enforcement and the business of being a, an, an FBI agent, I think, is only second to to leading men and women in combat. I remember as an as an army officer, we used to talk all the time about the burden of knowing that um, America's mothers and fathers had given you their sons and daughters um, into your care and that what that meant like to lead them in combat and being an FBI agent was very similar from the standpoint of you were now going, your job was to go into harm's way. You know, your job was to, I had a, uh, a SAC once who described FBI agents as the kind of crazy people who would run into a bank as a bank was being robbed as everybody else was running away. And that was very much what they wanted you to be, but they also very much wanted you to understand the seriousness of what came with that. Well, speaking of banks, I remember that there was a bank there and everybody said it was the most robbed bank in America where they'd have to roll up on a from a bank robbery. And then and then they had to learn how to process evidence, take statements, you name it, every, everything imaginable that would be involved. Yeah, they were it's very, very good in that in kind of the, the crawl, walk, run phase where they would they would teach you stuff, like I said, in the gym or in the classroom. And then you would use that in Hogan's Alley and the, and the scenarios would would continuously become more complex and build upon themselves. And what was what was really neat is at the same time that you as an agent are going through, there's a there's a second class of analysts that are going through at the same time and learning how to be analysts. And so at the end, they actually put you together in this capstone exercise in which you as an agent are acting on intelligence that the analyst has given. And so you're going up and grabbing bad guys and you actually go interrogate them. And so you huddle with the analysts to figure out what the best way to do that is and what you're trying to get out of the interrogation and everything that's done is videoed. And so you, your classmates get to watch it afterwards. You watch it afterwards. The role players who are playing the bad guys come in and say, okay, here's where you went wrong as you were doing the interrogation or here's the other part. And so it was, it was like I said, the amount of, I used to say as a helicopter pilot, you know, the reason why army helicopter pilots are the best in the world is because the military can afford to let you come close to, or in some cases, break that helicopter in training, that you get to push it to the absolute le- limits, that you don't do just hear about an auto rotation or practice it. You do an auto rotation all the way to the ground, even if that means bouncing the helicopter up as you do that. The FBI followed a very similar course where you're going to, the amount of resources that are dedicated to your training is just phenomenal. And so you get to do to to be the very best in the world, um, not just because of the caliber of people, but because of the resources that the government brings to bear as they're training you for that job. So I recall some scenarios when I was there that really put everybody under stress, and they had uh, bad guys and bad girl actors, and the agents would arrive at a house, have to try to search the house. These people would be hidden in there. And the uh, regular pistols were loaded with paint rounds, and people wore shields and masks. But I remember seeing some of the, you know, the agents in training just getting hosed, making mistakes and everything. And are like, thank God 
this is uh, learning. I, I, it just struck me that they went to, to that kind of expense of bringing in actors that did this regularly. Yeah, absolutely. And they and not just um, not just actors that were you know necessarily folks that they hired off the street or something that you would no you know, regulars when you yeah I mean you would you would get to to um, interview people of Middle Eastern descent, you would get to, you know, the, the role players would have the language skills that they would need, that it was, like I said, it was there. And, and oftentimes you would get, um, here are lessons learned across the intelligence community. So here's after, after 2001, the FBI went through a reckoning of sorts, if you will, because they, they might have been a member of the intelligence community beforehand, but uh, up until then the FBI was still, the majority of it focused on being a, a law enforcement organization, a criminally focused law enforcement organization. And so what that means um, from a sense of running and recruiting what in the FBI or in law enforcement you call sources or what in the intelligence community you call assets, it was still very much of the manner that was kind of the old cop school. Okay, I want this guy to work for me, so I'm going to roll him up because he did something wrong, and I'm going to say you can either work for me or go to jail. And there's certainly... Um, some some validity to that. It's worked for a very long time. But when you look at more um, counterintelligence, intelligence, counterterrorism um, focuses, that isn't how it works. Most of the time, the people that you're trying to enlist uh, to help you haven't done anything wrong. Um, and, and you're trying to establish rapport with them. You're trying. And so honestly, the, you know, the FBI then started to rely on some other members of the intelligence community who had done that for a long time and said, hey, here's a better way or, or another tool in your toolkit to look at running and recruiting sources. Here's how you run people. Here's And so that, you know, I went through the academy back in uh, 2010. And so it was very much we were the beneficiaries of that and of nine years of, of lessons um, because of the war on terror. And so it was it was very much a, a reorganization and how the FBI did business and more importantly and more Fortunately for people like me, a, a way in which they taught that skill, um, and so we were we were we were definitely um, the beneficiary of that hard won experience. And so, after uh, flying with the FBI and, and the uh, hostage rescue team and stuff, you came to Dallas. You were in counterintelligence, uh, anti espionage, correct? Yes. Yeah, so, and just to clarify what you said, so I didn't so. Um, the the HRT um, tactical recruiting program was was a pipeline to go do that. So you could at some point go uh, try out for HRT. I did not do that. Okay. Okay. I was accepted in that into the academy, but after the academy, I went to. Um, the Dallas field office. And so as a new agent, um, you're assigned a squad. And I was very fortunate that I was assigned uh, to something called the FIG or the FIG intelligence group or the field intelligence group. And so my um, while I was tracked counterintelligence, um, when you come to a field office, the SAC can take you, and which is special agent in charge, the person who runs that field office, they can move you into a different um, career field if necessary. And so what I started in was the intelligence career field instead. And so that's a very broad term. Um, but what I got to do was focus mainly on, on counterintelligence and foreign intelligence. And so it was my job to go out and 
and recruit and run people who could answer questions um, that we were that we were interested in. And, and you can kind of imagine the, the range of those questions could be people who had access to, to kind of interesting information from their background to current questions that you're trying to resolve that that are um, things that 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 the National Command Authority is interested in. And so it was a great um, assignment as a new agent because you're you're given, you know, you're given just this this carte blanche, if you will, that says, hey, here are the questions that we need answered. Here are some people that can potentially answer them. Go out and make that happen. And so you would do that. And, and your job, like I said, is to run and recruit those those sources and then and then come back with what's called source reports that you would, you know, enter into the computer and, and, and do write-ups of the meetings you have. And, and hopefully those source reports are then answering um, critical questions, which was, like I said, it was, a, it was a ton of fun and it very much directly um, built upon kind of what you learn in the academy and those, those critical skills, like I said before, that, that were very much influenced um, by September 11th and the nine years uh, after that. Well, I remember this was a this nine eleven brought a big change to all of the field offices to start having this kind of expertise and really focusing in. I know you can't talk about specific investigations, but can you tell my listeners about what kind of threats, the nature of threats that uh, because you know I, I told you I used to be on a staff on a congressional committee and, you know, you realized, hey, you know, there's a war going on out there very quietly. Everybody goes home, goes to sleep, watches their TV shows, go, gets up, goes to work. But there is a war going on in the background that they have no idea that they have a peaceful night's rest and safety for their children because of it. Give us a sense of what goes on in the background. Yes, sure. So from a general perspective, that can run a pretty big gambit. And so it can be only everything where, where Dallas actually had a number of, of pretty high profile cases um, where there were um, folks who were no kidding um, jihadis who were planning um, attacks of, of, of mass destruction there in the Dallas area, whether it was bombings or, or, or things like that. And so as, a, as an agent, you always want to have, um, a, obviously, the case that you're building around um, that particular individual or that particular organization. And then the best way to have information around that is to have somebody who is a source and whether that's somebody within that targeted organization, whether it's somebody that has knowledge. And so you have a lot of times you'll have an agent who's building a case and you'll have another agent who's potentially um, running the source who's providing information against that or for that case. And that can be both from a criminal perspective, from a counterterrorism perspective, uh, you also have um, counterintelligence, which is a huge um, focus area still for the FBI, where you have foreign nations, foreign entities that are trying either through espionage or um, through industrial espionage to be able to steal not just um, what you think of as traditional um, military or traditional intelligence secrets, but how do we do things um, that are very hard to do that the U.S. industry does well, you know, and and that can be you know, from the gambit, if, if you look at what kind of highly technical industries are located in a particular city, they are probably being targeted um, by foreign nationals who want to figure out the, you know, if there's a specific way in which you forge metals and it's done very well and very, um, very unique to the United States, you know, that 
the industrial IP around that is something that a foreign nation would want. And, and China is, is a big practitioner of this, is a big practitioner of stealing um, yes. the commercial IP of U.S. companies. So not, not the traditional one that you think of, of, of having a, a mole inside the CIA, but still very much something that the FBI works from a counterintelligence perspective. And from an intelligence perspective, um, similar things. If you have folks who were um, potentially who have come to the United States and had access to information, whether it would be, you know, from jihadi terrorists that are working in Syria to, you know, a rogue nation who is working a, a, a weapons of mass destruction program. Those are all national questions that um, folks who are decision makers want answers and want information about. And as somebody who runs and, and recruits sources, it's your job to go find those people and to establish those relationships and then turn them into to people who provide information for the kind of questions that you're trying to answer. I'm sure some people listening would say, wow, what, Dallas, Texas, down in the heart of Texas. But I don't think people realize, you know, we, we have these an international airport, an interstate highway system that intersects here going to all parts of the country. So it becomes a logical place for this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of high-tech industry in Dallas, Texas as well. Like I said, when you have kind of the the nexus of those things, that's going to be uh, a target for bad actors, for sure. And then you transition transitioned eventually to political corruption. Can you give us, a, and, and I, you know, I did a number of reports that ended up getting the FBI involved and people went to prison behind. Give us a sense of what the objective is on these and why it's so important to get a handle on corruption in our political system. Yeah, absolutely. The The FBI is unique um, as an organization in that it, it investigates um, our government, right, for, for lack of a better term. And so what the way that that what makes democracy work is that the people who are governed believe that they are that the people have power over the government that through voting you choose who is elected to represent you and that th that once that elected official is chosen that they execute their duties without bribes or corruptions or corruption or any of the things that you see in in you know what we used to call you know, banana republics, countries that were democracy in name only. Well, the, the way that that happens isn't isn't because um, people in here in the United States or our elected officials are any more uh, resistant to corruption than anywhere else. The, the way that, that kind of happens as a safeguard is that the FBI is charged with um, uh, investigating those violations. And so very much um, what you're trying to do when you when you work that is to look and say, hey, are there is there um, what looks like corruption? Is there have there been benefits that have ex been exchanged? Is a, a a entity profiting off of um, decisions that an elected official has made potentially? And does it look like you know maybe there was a payoff from that entity to that elected official? And it's kind of as you and I were talking a little bit before uh, we started the podcast. You have to weigh two different things in there um, with with political corruption investigations in that. If you are looking, and an investigation just means that there is a question out there that you're trying to answer. It shouldn't be construed ever as the fact that it's proof of criminal activity. But right. when it comes to political things and investigations, just the fact if, if I'm running for office and, and it comes out in the press that I'm under investigation, 
that has a detrimental effect or potentially has a detrimental effect on the election. And so it's something as an agent who was who was charged with investigating um, political corruption, it was something that was always in the forefront of your mind is that what you wanted to do was to be able to to do the investigation, but at the same time, not taint the person or organization being investigated with that reputation. Um, because what you didn't want to do was was to tarnish somebody who was innocent or to unduly influence an election. Because if you've done that, you've defeated the whole purpose of having an investigation into political corruption to begin with. And so it was one of the probably one of the the uh, the the most heavily scrutinized investigations just from that standpoint of that you wanted to be very slow and very deliberate and have lots of folks checking off on the work you were doing so that, you know, if you were wrong, if there was nothing there that you would, you would, the last thing you would ever want is to, like I said, is to, mm-hmm. you know, unduly influence an election by, by it, it coming out that, that a person or an entity was being investigated. So yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty my fascinating sense as a reporter. Work. It was probably among the most difficult investigations that the FBI conducted, but they're it. To, uh, what I saw in reporting, the FBI was the watchdog on government corruption. Yeah. I mean, to your point, if you look at what a politician is paid to do, he or she is going into office to rep- to represent a particular constituent, right? A constituency. And so it's often very hard to say, hey, if I'm a congressman from X, Y, and Z district, and I go to Congress and come back with a bunch of contracts for folks in my district, I've done my job, right? I mean, that's what I get paid to do is to represent them and to benefit them. And so it's often very hard, and, and it should be, there should be a higher hard standard to say, you know, what does it look like in, um, from business as usual for politicians versus what is very clearly um, corruption? And so it's, it's, it's part of that uh, process, like I said, and why Frankly, so many people review the case files and, and review the investigations that you're doing it to say, you know, is this really corruption? Is it business as usual? Is it something that's not merited at all? And certainly, you know, the the um, the the folks who politics is a rough and tumble sport, right? And so if you if you um, can get your opponent tainted with, um, hey, here's they're under investigation, or you can leak something to the news, and people are going to do that. And so you have to be always very, very wary of that as an FBI agent to say, hey, where did this tip come from? And what is the benefit of the person who's providing the tip? Is it, is it real? Is it something where, like kind of what I said before, where the whole object is just to get into the press that so-and-so is being investiga- investigated by the FBI because it benefits the person who did that? And so it certainly is um, a, 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 uh, a career field and, and a violation that's different from, from any other, I think. Well, after the FBI, you started writing, and you're a New York Times bestselling author of the Matt Drake series. I think you had your third edition come out in May called Hostile Intent. Tell us about Matt Drake and where he came from in your imagination and how much is kind of you spinning stuff out of your careers. Sure. So after I um, after I left the FBI, I went to work um, with some friends of mine who were veterans for a small company that um, that 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 uh, developed and helped marketed um, technology for for folks who were looking to um, penetrate the the special operations uh, market. And so for 
the next 10 years, I worked for um, companies who who designed um, tools for folks in the special operations and intelligence communities. And so I got to, for 10 years, um, besides my FBI time, besides my time in the military, meet the people and, and get to rub shoulders with the folks who uh, would be characters or could be characters in my novel. And so Matt Drake is a um, person who works for the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, and that's a organization not as many people have heard of. It's very similar in mission to the CIA, uh, but it is run through military channels. And so it is often has uh, the same mission set, and there's some friction between the CIA and DIA because a lot of times they're working in the same territory. And as a novelist, that's great because friction and tension is what uh, makes people turn pages on the books. And so when I was kind of crafting my series and figuring out what I wanted to do, I decided I wanted to use somebody from the Defense Intelligence Agency. I also chose Matt Drake to be a case officer, which is kind of what in the intelligence community you call somebody who did what I did in the FBI, somebody who runs and recruits um, what they call assets for a living. In our next episode, Don Bentley reveals how one of his books about Ukraine became a case of life imitating art. Hey, I want to encourage you to join our True Crime Reporter community to receive more information about our stories. There's a red colored box to sign up on every page of our website at truecrimereporter.com. If you have a question, send me an email at fan at truecrimereporter.com. We'll be back next week. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.